Good morning, church. We continue our uh, series on the book of Joel this morning. We'll be uh, looking at Joel chapter 2 and verses 18 to 32. Would you turn with me to Joel 2, 18 to 32, please? But before we get there, would you join me in prayer? Father, we love you. We worship you, we praise you, and we love you for the way you are building your church, for the way you are working redemption in this world, for the way you take broken things and make them new and make them beautiful. Father, we thank you for your word that brings light. We thank you for your spirit that gives life. And we pray this morning, as, as I, as a broken man, attempt to preach the beauty of your word in the life of your spirit. Father, I pray that you would nourish and strengthen your church. I pray that you would encourage and challenge. I pray that you would give growth. I pray that you, the name of Christ would be lifted high. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified, even in my brokenness. We praise you for the way you are building your church always. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Church, before we get to the book of Joel, I want to ask you a quick question. It's kind of a funny question. It's not funny. You won't laugh, but it's funny. <laughs> Have you ever noticed how sometimes people take Bible references, Bible verses out of context and quote in ways that are kind of funny and not quite in keeping with the text? You ever notice that? Philippians, Jess is smiling, I think she has noticed this. <laughs> Philippians 4.13 is a, is a prime culprit for this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so people have used this to encourage their friends to go skydiving, to get over their fears and do something bold. Or people have used this to encourage their friends to beef up their bench press, to be strong because you can do all things. The verse was actually written in the context of Paul being in jail and the Philippian church worrying for him. And Paul realizing that persecution was probably coming to the Philippians too. And so trying to encourage this young church by his example, by his example of being content with plenty and of being content with little or nothing, with being content even in jail if that's where the Lord had him. That's the context of Philippians 4.13. Have you ever heard that misquoted? You don't have to answer. Jeremiah 29.11 is another prime culprit. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh, which is what gets translated as the Lord in, in most of our English Bibles. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That one shows up in encouragement cards, in get well cards, in graduation cards. In fact, it was spoken to a people in a context very similar to Joel's context. A people, well, the same people, the people of Israel who had been unfaithful to God, who had violated his covenant, and after much patience, the consequences of covenant violation come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marches through Israel, overwhelms the nation, sacks Jerusalem, and takes the elite of Israel as captives to Babylon. And so you have this little community 
who remembers Jerusalem, who remembers the worship of Yahweh in the temple, but who can't worship anymore. And they wonder if Yahweh has abandoned them by allowing his enemy, their enemies, to do this. If he is just done with them because of their sinfulness and their unfaithfulness. And in the context of this confusion, in the context of this disappointment, discouragement, even despair almost, the prophet Jeremiah writes to them and says, No, the Lord is not done with you. He has plans for you. You, You're facing the consequences of your sin. For 70 years you'll be in exile, but he will bring you back and he will restore. This is the context of Jeremiah 29. But sometimes, people take it out of context. And yet this one is kind of funny. Things get interesting in this passage because the fact is that God does have plans for his people. Not just his people in exile, but his people always through history. He He had plans back then. He has plans right now for you and me through ups and downs through his people's faithfulness and even through their sin, through times that are glorious and triumphant and hopeful and through times that lead to despair like our situation in Joel, God has been unfurling a glorious plan for his people, a plan not just for Israel but for the redemption of mankind. What we see in Scripture is that this plan is mysterious, as in the word comes from something that is hidden, that is not revealed, that is not easy to see. We don't fully understand it. Sometimes it seems hidden, especially in dark times. But it's also beautiful. God is a God of love and grace, and His love and grace are on full display at the revelation of His plan. His sublime wisdom and sovereignty shine through the unfolding of God's plan. Our prophetic text this morning points, to, points us to one of the most beautiful and hopeful facets of God's plan. It points us to a promise that brings comfort, assurance, and hope. It puts the glory of the gospel in full display and points to its climax, to its zenith, to its apex. When we think of the gospel, we often think of Christ on the cross bearing the punishment for our sins. And this is true. This is good news. We don't have to pay the punishment that we cannot pay. But the gospel is even more intricate than that. And our text this morning points us to a core aspect of the gospel, a different facet of this beautiful jam. The gear, so to speak, that the gospel engages with our lives, that it invades our hearts, that it transforms us, that changes us from the inside out, which is what the gospel is designed to do, Christian. If the gospel hasn't changed you, the gospel hasn't reached you, we cannot remain unchanged by the gospel. This morning, I hope we'll catch a beautiful view of the outworking of God's plan for mankind. Our big idea this morning, are you ready for it? Well, you have it in your bulletins. Our big idea this morning is keep calm and trust the plan. God, through history, has been unfolding a beautiful plan of redemption for his people. And this morning, as we look at the beauty and the mystery of God's plan, as we look at the glorious apex of this plan, our big idea is keep calm and trust the plan. With this in mind, church, would you stand with me as we read through Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 32. Then the Lord became jealous for his land 
and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, the great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. As a recap, church, last week we looked at Joel 1.1 to 2.17, where we find Israel, because of their unfaithfulness in the midst of unprecedented disaster, overwhelming, traumatic circumstances have overtaken them. And these would lead to deep psychological and social and economic repercussions. Israel faced a crisis unlike anything it had seen in generations. Its life was turned upside down, and society was left with deep scars, not unlike our context in the last two years. Not so unlike our context. But in the midst of this disaster, we see that God still loves his people. Though the day of the Lord, this day of reckoning is upon them, God, through the prophet Joel, calls them to turn away from their sin and to turn back to him. And what we see is the disaster, in fact, are great opportunities for us to return to Yahweh. Last week, we called one another in disaster to return to Yahweh. In our text last week, we saw that God is sovereign even in disaster. We saw that lament is appropriate in disaster. We saw that sometimes repentance is necessary in disaster. And we saw that always, even in disaster, Yahweh 
is merciful. We see Joel call God's people to repentance, to turn away from their sin, and to turn to God for mercy. And it seems that at least some of the people listen to him. As a quick aside, have you ever noticed how often hardened hearts, even hardened hearts, are softened by overwhelming calamity, by overwhelming circumstances? Fear can be a good mechanism. It was created to be a mechanism that kept us out of danger, that saw danger coming and moved away from it. We fear fire so we don't get burned. And there is nothing more dangerous than incurring God's wrath by continuing in sin. Sin leads us to eternal destruction, which is why the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's a healthy fear. When fear causes us to turn from our sin, this is grace. Calamity and affliction, as painful as they are when we're going through them, can be tremendous blessings from God for us. They're His His gracious way of bringing us back to Him, bringing us to repentance with a little pain now that will save us from eternal pain later. God disciplines those He loves. But often when fear strikes, when disaster and calamity strikes, we can't see this. Our vision gets obscured by pain. God's discipline in the context of Joel, though, fulfilled its purpose. Some of the people at least repented. In our text this morning, we see the beginning of God's response to the people. We see in verses 18 to 27 that God's plan is not to destroy his people, but to restore them to lushness and fruitfulness. The first point I'd like to bring up, bring up for us this morning from verses 18 to 27, church, is the mystery and beauty of God's plan. God's people haven't always understood his plan, especially in times of pain that seemed hidden and obscured, like when God allows godless people to overrun his people and overwhelm them and take them into captivity, when God allows pandemics or plagues to ravage countries and the whole world, God's plan seems mysterious and obscured. We don't understand his purpose or his reasoning, but he has a plan. And through even disaster, God's plan has never been threatened. He has never given up on his sinful people. Despite our rebellion and turning away, the beauty of God's grace, the beauty of God's mercy and love, his unbreakable covenant love for his people shines through Scripture. The beauty and mystery of God's plan is our first point this morning. And we see this in Joel too. The day of the Lord, the day of reckoning has come upon his people. Calamity has struck. The people are suffering. But even now, God calls them to repent and return to him. He comforts them with promises of coming restoration. Look at verse 18 with me. Then the the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. We read in verse 20 that this invading army, his army that he has brought upon the people to discipline them, he'll do away with them. He will remove them completely. All the judgments of earlier in chapter 1 and chapter 2 are turned back. The lack of grain and wine and oil he restores in verse 19 and 24. The animals that have no pasture, the trees that have no fruit, he reverses in verse 22. The dryness that is sucking the life out of the land and the people, his judgment on this people for their sin, he promises to turn that to lushness 
to green fruitfulness by sending them rain in due season. For a people who are based on agriculture, whose lives depend on their harvests, this was a promise of life. Last week, we saw this terrible calamity from Yahweh as a result of the people's sin. And so the people wonder if this is the end of the road for them, if Yahweh is done. But in this text, we see God's promise to restore. Redemption is always God's ultimate purpose. Hold on to that, church. God's plan and purpose always leads to redemption. God redeems everything he touches. We see this all the way back in Deuteronomy 30, hundreds of years before this was written, as this people's ancestors are entering the promised land and they cross their hearts and swear to Moses that they will always be faithful, that they will always be true to Yahweh, that they will follow him with all their lives. God knows better. And God tells Moses, even way back in Deuteronomy 30, hundreds of years before this, that the people will reject him, that the people will be unfaithful to him, that they will violate his covenant, and as a result, they'll go into exile. But God promises even back then that he will not let them go, that he will restore them. Turns out, of course, God was right about the people. They do abandon him. They do go astray. They worship other gods. They are false to their covenant commitments. Over and over, God warns them that exile is coming. He sends prophets to call them back. But he promises that restoration will follow, even as they disobey. And here in our text, Joel sounds the same note. Calamity has struck. The people face the prospect of terrible suffering, as we saw in chapter 1 and earlier in chapter 2. But God was not done with them. They might not understand how calamity could be worked into his plan. It was mysterious. But God's love held on. God's mystery, the mystery and beauty of God's plan. It's difficult to hope when times are dark, isn't it, church? Sometimes when affliction overwhelms us, hope remains hidden. It becomes mysterious as pain fills our vision, but God is committed to loving his people. This is a promise of comfort for the people back here in Joel, and it's a promise of comfort for us because it's the same God that we worship today. Do you ever worry about how the church is doing? Our society's values have been moving away from Scripture for some time now. Taking a biblical stand today can often be misinterpreted, seen as something evil or wrong. It's possible that animosity will increase against Scripture and against the things of God. It's possible that persecution will come. I suggest to you that's not what we should be worrying about. Through 300 years of persecution, the early church in the Roman Empire thrived and multiplied and grew. And this has been through, true through history, right up into the, to the church in China over the last 70 years, where through terrible, harsh communist persecution, the church has grown to be possibly, arguably, the biggest single ethnicity church in the world today, with possibly as many as 100 million people who are willing to give up everything for Christ. Or the church in Afghanistan that through terrible Islamic persecution is the fastest growing church today in the world. Persecution hasn't generally been a big threat. Not fun, not comfortable, not pleasant, but not a big threat to the plans of God. 
What I'm far more concerned about is how the church of North America is doing internally. In an effort to not offend the world, so many churches are compromising on clear issues of biblical obedience. Some churches are even abandoning their commitment to Scripture entirely, which is spiritual suicide. Some churches have given up on discipleship as if God didn't call us to obedience and to holiness, as if there were any other form of Christianity. Biblical illiteracy as not reading God's word or prayerlessness run rampant as if any organism could exist or live or thrive without the things that give it life and sustain it. Without being in God's word, without being in prayer, we will dry up. This is why our leaders champion a, a God-centered approach to our community, to our church. This is why our leaders champion prayer. Because this is what Christians need to thrive. This is what the church needs to thrive. In other places, there's disunity and infighting. There's pastors having feuds with other pastors. Believers assuming they're the only faithful ones because of some little side issue that they hold to. There's fracture and animosity and attitudes that are totally out of keeping with Christ's command and Christ's example. Remember, this is the Jesus who said that they would know, the world would know that his disciples belong to him because of their love, because of our love for one another. This is the man who modeled humility and gentleness and patience for us. I sometimes am concerned about how sick and weak the church in parts of North America looks. But this passage in Joel 2 and other passages like this bring me comfort, and I hope they bring you comfort because we see in these passages, they remind us that God has always had a plan for his people. A plan that takes even our sin into account. When things are dark and discouraging, his plan may seem obscure, it may seem mysterious and hidden. But God's plan is rooted in his unbreakable, in his beautiful, in his committed covenant love. God's plan will not fail. In spite of us, God will accomplish his plan for his people. May this comfort you, Christian. Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But the same truth applies to us individually. If we belong to Christ, notice all the possessives in this text. Look, text, look with me at verse 18. The Lord's people, his people, in verse, uh, his land. In verse 26, he talks about my people. In verse 27, he talks about my people. God is jealous for those who are his. If we belong to Christ, then God's love never abandoned, uh, abandons us. We might go through seasons of coldness and even rebellion. We might go through seasons of sin. But God will discipline. He will discipline because we are his. But God will restore because he loves us. And he will complete the work that he has begun in us. This doesn't mean, however, that there won't be temporal consequences. Consequences in this life for our sin. Sometimes our sin leads to brokenness, to broken relationships, to relational hurt. And often those closest to us, like our children or our spouses, are the ones who suffer the most. Sometimes our sin leads to financial loss or sometimes to financial ruin. Our sin may even lead to jail. But if we will repent and return to the Lord, as this people do, though the con there may be consequences in this life, that we will not pay the eternal consequences of our sin because Christ paid for them on the cross. 
we will not suffer punishment forever for it. We are forgiven. God may discipline us, but he will restore us. And he is able to restore even the years the locusts have eaten, even the time and resources and relationships we have wasted because of our sin, even the fruitless years, the fruitfulness and the brokenness that our sin has led to, God, sorry, the fruitlessness and brokenness that our sin has led to, God is able to restore and pour abundant fruitfulness that goes beyond our past folly and beyond the sin, that, the destruction that our sin has caused if we will turn to him. Christian, if there's something in your life, something in your heart that you know you need to turn away from, that you know is dishonoring to God, I urge you to return to God this morning to confess your sin because he is gracious and he will forgive. If you belong to God, God will be merciful. You will find that before you turn to him, he is looking for you. And when you rise up to return to him, he runs to you because this is his character. He loves and has mercy on those who are his. His love for you will not fade. But the temporal consequences of sin, the consequences we face in this life, will accrue and multiply and get worse the longer we remain in sin. Return to God today, if this applies to you, Christian. Dark times may obscure God's plan. Suffering may render his plan mysterious. We might not understand it at times. But what we see in the pages of Scripture, what we see in Joel 2, is the beauty of a God who will not let go even of unworthy, even of sinful, faithless people. He clings to us. He promises to do us good. And he always keeps his promises. Not because we deserve it, but because we are his. He will not let go of his children. The beauty and the mystery of God's perfect plan is our first point this morning. Our second point comes from verses 28 to 32. And it points to the glorious apex, apex, the magnificent climax of God's plan in the gospel, the new birth through God's spirit that would come through the Messiah. Persistent sin would lead his people to exile, and it would be followed by restoration. This is all through the Old Testament. This is in Deuteronomy. This is in Isaiah. This is in Ezekiel. This is in Jeremiah. But this is just a tiny part of God's grand plan. I mentioned earlier that God is always working redemption. This is the purpose of Scripture, to show the redemption that He brings about to a broken and sinful humanity who are in exile from Him, who because of our sin have lost the access to Him that we were created to have in the garden. Restoration for all mankind from the exile of sin is God's purpose. Let's zoom out here for a moment. And go all the way back to the garden. All the way to the beginning. God is the creator of everything. He made all that exists. But there's one creature in all creation that's unique. Mankind is made in God's own image. He fashions this creature out of clay. But then he breathes into this creature the breath of life. And that's an interesting Hebrew word. It can mean breath or wind or spirit. 
by breathing into us, he took us physical beings and made us spiritual so that we exist in two worlds. We are not just spiritual beings like the angels. We are not just physical beings like dogs or bears. C.S. Lewis calls us amphibians because in two worlds we exist and we should. God designed us, God desires for us to thrive. This is act one, like stage one of God's perfect plan, creation. He made us perfect in his image. He breathed, us and breathed into us the spirit of life. He made us beings who are physical and spiritual to be his rulers, to exemplify his image over creation. This is beautiful. But tension and evil is introduced in act two when sin enters the world. We begin our existence in perfect harmony in perfect fellowship with God, but this mysterious creature, the serpent, tempts us to question God's goodness, to question God's word, to question God's perfect plan for mankind. And sadly, heartbreakingly, Adam and Eve listened to this voice, which is where everything starts going wrong. Christian, this voice continues to tempt us and plague us today, asking if God could be holding good back from us. Asking if God's boundaries aren't just restrictive and pointless. Asking whether obedience is worth the cost. This voice is always lying. Don't you listen to it, Christian. Listening to this voice is where everything began going wrong for humanity. Listening to this voice was catastrophic for the first man and woman. Questioning led to disobedience and disobedience led to consequences. Spiritually, mankind died when Adam chose sin over faith, faithfulness, and the whole world was cursed as a result, with this deadening of what is designed to make us hunger for God, to hunger for good, to hunger for righteousness, came a horrible downward spiral. We read about it in Genesis 4, with violence leading to exploitation, leading to injustice, evil multiplied, and sin came to reign the human experience. This is act two, stage two of God's perfect plan. And we wonder, it's so dark, it's horrible. How could it be good? How could it be perfect? And yet God, who is good and who is sovereign, writes even our sin, even our mess-ups, even our failure into his perfect plan. He takes even us into account in working what is beautiful. So right from the beginning, God begins unfurling act three, stage three, his plan of redemption. He begins calling a people to himself, a people who are to love him and to obey him, which is what we are designed to do by our maker so that the world could see how glorious it is, how thriving a people are who live according to his design so all can see the blessing that comes from walking with the living God. This was Israel's purpose, but they couldn't live up to it because remember, they were spiritually dead. They had God's perfect law, but they couldn't keep it. They were marked by unfaithfulness and sin and rebellion. This was the purpose of the law, in fact. Paul reminds us of this in Galatians 2.16, that the law shows us that it was impossible for fallen man to live up to God's perfect standard. But this was still part of the plan. And this still takes us to its climax in the gospel. Would you read with me at verse 28 again? And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. All through the Old Testament, this God who loves this adulterous people points to a future work that he will do in our hearts. In Deuteronomy 30, God calls this a circumcision of the heart. Not outward circumcision, but inward circumcision. In Ezekiel, God talks about this as a work of the Spirit where he takes away hearts of stone, hearts that are unfeeling and senseless, and gives us hearts of flesh. He calls this a coming back to life from the deadness that humanity finds itself in. In Jeremiah, God talks about taking God's word, which was external, and putting it in our hearts so that we will love God with our whole hearts, so that we will want to follow him with all of our lives. Ezekiel, again, 36, talks about God causing us, causing us to walk in his ways. No longer will this be something we need to live up to, we strive to live up to. God working in us changes us from within, he makes us new. He brings back to life what died because of sin. This is the Christian life. This is what Joel 2, 28 to 32 is promising here. This is the glorious apex of God's plan. When sin was paid for on the cross, when Jesus was raised, when John 7, 39 tells us that happened, had to happen first. But once atonement was worked for mankind, when sin was taken care of, all who come to Christ in faith all who are his receive the spirit of the living God poured out on them, and nothing will be the same. This is what happened at Pentecost. Acts 2 powerfully records for us the fulfillment of this promise. When the church was born, everything was changed for God's people. In the church, we all have access to God, men and women, slaves and free, from the lowest to the highest, from the oldest to the youngest. We don't need to know God from a distance, like see him on a mountain with thunder and lightning and tremble. We don't need to read about him from some prophet and what, excuse me, wonder. We don't need to hear about him from some preacher and long for something more. We have access to the living God because of what Christ has done for us, because his spirit has been poured out on the church. There is a huge difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. I've heard a lot about Ryan's dad. He used to be a pastor. He's recently retired. I hear he's an amazing guy. I'm sure he, I, I see that he did a great job raising his kids. But I don't know him. I only know of him. In contrast, I know my mom. I know what her laughter sounds like. I know how she likes her eggs. I know she likes milk chocolate with hazelnuts and carnations are her favorite flower. I know the passions of her heart. I've groaned at her sense of humor. Do you see the difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone? And what scripture tells us is that in this age, when the spirit is poured out on his people, all men, all women can know God, Christian, don't settle for less. Don't settle for knowing about God, hearing about God, hearing about what God did to someone else. You can know God. God calls you to walk with him in intimacy, like the intimacy you share with those closest to you. This is the glory of the gospel. 
everyone in the church can know God. We can have direct access to the living God. Grasp this. Seize this. If the Spirit lives in us, we can read and understand Scripture. We can have God open Scripture to our eyes, not just hear about Him, but see Him in the pages of Scripture. We can talk with Him. We can walk with Him. We can ask Him to reveal Himself to us, and He will, because of the price that Christ paid on the cross. Do you know God? Do you know God? Or do you just know about God? Do you walk with God? Or have you heard about God? Have you been transformed from the inside out by the work of the Spirit? Scripture tells us it changes everything. Charles Spurgeon had this beautiful illustration of a pig. doesn't start beautiful. But imagine a pig right here. And in front of the pig, two meals. One was a five-course meal cooked by a chef, and the other was a bucket of slop. Pigs being pigs, when I release that pig, he will go for the slop because that's what pigs do. That's because because that's what pigs are attracted to, because that, that's what entices pigs. But imagine that I could snap my finger and transform this pig into a man. Suddenly he would lift up his head and maybe throw up because slop is disgusting to men. This creature has been made new. He's been transformed into something different. And now he will have the appetites of a man, not of a pig. And what Scripture tells us is this transformation, when the Spirit enters us, makes us from pigs to men. It brings us to life. It makes us new. Christian, are you a man or a woman? A person? This is God's design. Have you ever encountered religion that seemed hard and dead, where people are trying to live up to the law, to what someone should be like, to the way what a Christian should look like from the outside, when they look down on everyone who couldn't meet their standard? It's like putting a skirt and lipstick on a pig, and then having that pig look down on people who weren't as well-dressed, still a pig. That is not God's design. This is transformation from the inside out by the Spirit of God giving us new hearts, men and women who long for what God longs, who desires for what He desires from new hearts, religion that is warm, filled with love and bubbling over with good works as an overflow of what God is doing inside us because of what God has done for us. Don't settle for less, Christian. This is what God's Word promises you. And if you don't have this yet, Ask Him until He gives it to you. We cannot work this up. We cannot drum this up. It would be ridiculous to pretend. Ask Him. He will do this for you. He will do this for anyone who calls upon Him. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is salvation, that we may know God, according to Jesus in John 17. Let's continue reading in verse 30. And I will show you wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
Peter in Acts 2 interprets these signs as having happened at the death of Christ, as his blood was shed, as darkness covered the sun while Jesus hung on the cross. As an earthquake shook Jerusalem, the temple was shaken to its foundations, and the curtain was torn in two, as salvation was bought on Mount Zion, so that everyone call, who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But it's very likely, very possible anyways, that there is another layer to this. And we're going to be looking more into this next week when Joel comes back to the same theme. But this is the climax of God's plan. This is the heart of the gospel. God is not calling us to live up to the demands of the law, to be pigs who pretend, put on shirts and, and ties and pretend that we are something that we are not. God is calling us to become new. Though the, through the work of the Spirit, through the transformed hearts that God promises and that God delivers, He is calling us to be transformed from the inside out. He, is, he promises that He will do this for us, for any who ask Him. Friend, are you living? Are you alive to the things of God? Can you attest to becoming a new creature, being made new by God's Spirit? Or do you just know about God? This transformation, church, is the climax of, climax of Act 3. Not Acts, chapter 3, but Act 3, stage 3 of God's plan, the redemption of mankind. This is the apex, the climax of God's perfect plan. Our second point this morning, because of the cross, God's Spirit is poured out on all who come to Him in Christ. All of us, from the greatest to the least, can personally know God. We have access to Him as His children. In Christ, He makes us new. Next week, we'll be looking at Act 4, Stage 4, the consummation of all things, the completion and culmination of all God's plans when He has final victory and final vindication over His enemies. But that's next week. So this morning, we looked at the mystery and the beauty of God's plan, how sometimes it can seem veiled. Sometimes in darkness and in pain, we don't get it. And it's mysterious how the circumstances that we are living through can still be part of God's plan. But what we see in Scripture and in the testimony of our lives is that God in His love clings to us. His plan is mysterious, but His plan is beautiful. And we saw how his plan culminates, it comes to a climax, its apex in the gospel of Jesus Christ, through which, through, through which God's spirit is poured out on people, on unworthy people like you and me, through which we are made new. God has a plan, church, a plan crafted from the beginning of time in infinite wisdom, a plan that is beautiful and glorious. And if you are in Christ, then you are a part of that plan. So keep calm and trust the plan. He will finish what he has begun.